Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new series of motorsport podcasts. Many of you will have listened to our Engineering Formula One driver series with the likes of Patrick Head, Adrian Newey, and Gordon Murray earlier this year. I'm delighted to bring you the next set of recordings. This time, we turn our attention to the Scuderia, the Formula One team that's so famous, it's simply referred to as the team. Founded in 1939 and a constant on the F1 grid since that first world championship in 1950, Ferrari is the team that every driver wants to race for. 221 pole positions, 253 fastest laps, 238 Grand Prix victories, and let's not forget the 16 Formula One World Championships. For all its success and wonderful history though, Ferrari has always been a tricky place to work. Many drivers have left or been unceremoniously kicked out after little more than a season. What is Ferrari like to drive for? And what of Enzo himself? In this series of podcasts, we speak to the men who know best, those lucky few who have driven for Ferrari during their Formula One careers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm joined by Stefan Johansson, all the way from the United States. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. it's, uh, this podcast has actually kind of been in the works between the two of us for I, well, I don't know how many years now. I think probably two or three <laughs> oh, no. years. We, we keep getting uh, keeps getting postponed because of such things as the coronavirus and and yeah. uh, all that stuff. But we are here now, which is great. Yeah, um, and uh, so this is obviously part of our driving for Ferrari series, and so we want to talk about those two years you spent at, at Maranello. Um, yeah. But before that, I um I've been obviously sort of reading quite a few bits and pieces and quotes from you over the last few days. And mm. one of the ones I thought was quite interesting was despite winning the British F3 title, you went on to say that you were just grateful to be in F1. Is that, is that really true? Well, I mean, in a, I mean, in a roundabout way, I suppose it was, you know, just, I get, I don't know how you would phrase it exactly, but a little bit too grateful just for the opportunity, I guess, rather than sort of pushing too hard for my, or, or harder for fend for my territory, let's say, you know, in the bigger teams in particular, because you have to, you know, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. There was, a, there was another uh, paragraph, actually, because you had lunch with Simon Taylor for Motorsport mm-hmm. many years ago. Yeah. And there was, there was one paragraph in there that just, just made me laugh. Uh, you, you said, I was grateful to be in F1. Uh, when I was in the car, there was no question of my commitment. But to get to the top, you have to be an arsehole. And there are plenty of them around. <laughs> so <laughs> I suppose, <Yeah. laughs> the, it's, it, do you think that the, one of the, you know, a, a problem was that you weren't an arsehole? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's a fine line and, and you, 
you know, I think had I known what I knew later on in my career, let's say, I would have probably been better off at a team like Ferrari, for example, because remember, I hadn't even done a full season when I joined Ferrari. You know, I'd done sporadic, you know, sort of few races with Tyrrell, few races with Tolman, half a season with Spirit, you know, so I was very green to Formula One, really, in terms of, you know, how you, not so much drive, I mean, the car, like I said, is, is kind of the easy bit in many ways for a driver, you know, it's all the other stuff you got to get your head around, you know, and uh, just the politics inside the, every team, but in particular Ferrari, of course, uh, as it's always been, you know, so I mean, I think it was a lot of, a lot of things I had to learn very fast, you know, to be able to, uh, to manage all that. Yeah, I do. We'll, we'll talk about Ferrari in a second, but I, I just wanted to talk about your first, you know, your first Grand Prix weekend. Um, you had only really done a, one season of Formula 3. Uh, you'd been casting, I think, since the age of eight and racing from the age of 12. Um, mm. But that, I mean, that must, that is, and you hadn't even tested the car. You just, you just had to turn up and try and qualify this thing. You mean the first race with Ferrari? Yeah. No, the yeah, first, literally. First I mean, it all yeah. the deal came together like super quick, you know, like in a really two, three days. I mean, we we sort of kept in touch a little bit over the winter because they'd always they'd shown an interest from '83, uh, in fact, when I drove the Spirit the first time. Um, so we were always casually in contact, you know, just on sort of. And the idea was to do some testing maybe during the winter. And then this thing came up with, you know, with our new, whatever happened there. And at the same time, of course, Tolman, who I had a contract with, uh, didn't have any tires. You know, there was that situation with Pirelli. And uh, so they couldn't do the first two races. So, uh, which kind of left the door open, you know. And then thankfully, Alex Hawkridge, Tolman uh, released me, you know, from the contract. So I could go and do this thing. But literally, I arrived at... Maranello on the Wednesday before the Portuguese Grand Prix uh, met the old man, you know, I mean, it was already kind of agreed before then he just wanted to meet and know who he was dealing with, obviously. And um, then straight to the factory Wednesday night to try to do you know, basically uh, make me fit in Michaela's seat, which I mean, our body structure couldn't be more different. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was not exactly the most comfortable seat I've ever had, you know, but, and then I did like literally maybe five laps around Fiorano very early on Thursday morning. And then we got on the plane to Portugal, arrived on Thursday afternoon, and then it was straight into first practice on Friday. And so when I was talking about your, your first sort of Grand Prix, I was meeting, you know, a few years before with, with Shadow. And oh, just Shadow, quickly, okay. Yeah, yeah, when you were so... Yeah, no, because it, it was a similar thing in terms of you, you were just dumped in the car. You obviously, you kind of made a career out of it. <laughs> well, it's sort of been the story of my life in many ways. Yeah, but yeah, that was, I had literally not driven anything more powerful than an F3 car when I arrived in Buenos Aires. And of course, no, not a single lap testing before the first official practice. We made the seat in the pit lane. And, uh, you know, I mean, every one of my heroes is there. <laughs> <laughs> Villeneuve, Reutemann, Alan Jones, Mario Andretti, you know, I mean, everyone. And uh, so it was a bit, you know, a bit of a daunting experience to say the least. I spent more time looking in my mirrors, I think, making sure I didn't get in anyone's way than trying to go fast half the time. But, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity. I mean, you know, I got, I got a drive for free 
and uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was it was good. You you touched briefly earlier on sort of why you got that call from Ferrari. Um, do you think it, it was your performance? You know, in in the Italian Grand Prix when you qualified seventeenth and finished fourth, and then you know in Estoril that that season you were you know quicker than Senna, who obviously couldn't quite compute why his teammate was was faster than him. Do you think it was that end, end of that season that really cemented Ferrari giving you a call? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think Monza helped because it was in Italy and it was, you know, Monza and, you know, but uh, the main one was really Portugal, I think, when I was fighting with Nicky the whole race, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the one that kind of sealed it, you know, because I got a call shortly after that, you know, about... Um, you know, doing some testing or whatever, but uh, everyone then knowing that I had a contract with Tolman for the following year, but uh, they were still interested in doing some testing over the winter and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, throughout your season, you were surrounded by, throughout your career in Formula One, you were surrounded by very big characters. And one of those was Ken Tyrrell, but I think you got on with him quite well, didn't you? Oh, I loved Ken. I mean, he was great. You know I mean? He, for for a young driver like myself, you know, with no experience, he was the best team owner you could have. I mean, he was really just little things, you know, but really important things in the end. That that just just little bits and pieces, you know, that and um, knew how to kind of you know motivate you and get the best out of you. You know, so yeah, Ken was great, and we, and I just loved him as a person. I mean, he was fantastic. You know, we had some really great dinners you know, in the evenings of the races and stuff, you know, and very, very funny and obviously, you know, very switched on guy. So, yeah, it was great. It's a great experience. And you going from Ken Tyrrell to Enzo, your, your, just talk, talk us through your first meeting with Enzo because it was, um, it was kind of everything that as a motorsport fan you wish it will be. And I guess, I guess it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, Enzo Ferrari, you know, he, he was the master of creating this whole myth and around him, you know, I mean, and, and this experience was certainly no different, you know, it was kind of secret, you know, no one it wasn't meant to know. So I got picked up in Bologna by Pier Paolo Gardella, who was like the assistant to Marco Piccinini at the time. And, uh, he took me to the old, old factory in Modena, not the one in, in, in Maranello. Around us, and it was it's just derelict, really. There was nothing going on there. Um, but he wanted to meet, they still had his old office there, so we, uh, it was decided that we were going to meet there. And we arrived, you know, like at I don't know, about five in the afternoon or something like that, maybe. The sun was just kind of going down, and um, I remember there was no lights on. You walk through this hallway, and all you can see is photographs of. Nuvolari, Fanjo, you know, all the, all the great heroes, you know, and I mean, I had goosebumps, you know, Sterling Moss, everybody. And uh, we finally arrived in, in old man's office and he's sitting in the very back, you know, no lights on. So you can just see the sort of, it was like a Fellini movie. <laughs> and all you can see is his silhouette, you know, and, and his very distinctive feet, you know, his, his, features are quite distinctive anyway and uh so we you know sit down and they start talking in italian a little bit and then i think piero his son was doing some translation and then marco piccinini and and then uh you know and the only he asked me one question he said are you hungry and i 
you know, I figured he meant, he didn't mean, am I hungry? I said, do I want some food? But more like, you know, I said, anyway, I said, I've never been more hungry in my life, you know, and then he sort of just reached his hand, reached out and shook my hand and said, okay, you're fired. You're hired. So. Amazing. Yeah, you, yeah. you got to know him quite well, didn't you? Because you, you used to go out to lunch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we every day, I mean, and we did a lot of testing around Fiorano. I mean, it was every day, three, four days a week sometimes, you know, between races, just pounding round and round and round. And every, every day we used to have lunch with him in his house at the track. And it was great. I mean, we, we had some fantastic lunches. I mean, his incredible sense of humor, you know, and, and uh, very funny and very caring in a way i would say you know i mean he kind of cared for you as a human being not just as a driver who you know happened to drive his car but you know you kind of felt like a you know there was more than that you know yeah, it, it was it was amazing really it was interesting because derek bell because before doing this this series of podcasts you know i always thought that he was actually quite standoffish and cold and and actually having spoken to drivers who, who drove for him it's it, it's not true at all and you, no. am, I right in, am I right in thinking that he used to ask you about all the girls you were dating and <laughs> used to, your, your stories would get more and more colourful because Piccinini had to translate. Is that, is that right? Well, yeah. Well, his stories got pretty colourful, <laughs> <laughs> which was even better because Piccinini, you know, was very religious, you know, he was heavily into the Vatican Church and all that. And, but is he... And so he just did it to wind him up, you know. He was sort of, you know, blinking with his eye, and then he started going. And Piccinini had to sort of, you know, and he was just laying it on and laying it on, you know. <laughs> Piccinini was red like a beet in his face, you know. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Brilliant. And it's, you know, you all the all the stories are that all he cared about was the Ferrari engine, and you know, you yeah. think that would have been true back in the day, but even in the eighties. I think that was still very much the case, wasn't it? A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, he he was definitely rooted in the old school, you know, of like the engine was really the thing that mattered for him. And of course, that's one of the things, because I was very good friends with Alan Jenkins, John Barnard and, and Steve Nichols and those guys at McLaren, because when I drove for Ron in F3 in 1980, those guys were all sitting up in what they call the fish tank in the old workshop in, in Woking designing well we didn't really know what they were up to up there but it turned out they were designing the new mp4 of course so so i knew those guys very well and we kept in touch and still do to this day in fact um and they were telling me all the stuff that were wind tunnel stuff they were doing and everything and of course i don't think the ferrari had ever been in the wind tunnel at that point you know and went, went, so i started pushing that agenda a little bit you know and it sort of the politics got quite complicated, <laughs> let's put it that way. But, uh, but yeah, it was very much just an engine. You know, it was like five minutes about the car, 10 minutes about the engine, and then the rest was just what you've been up to the week before in your social <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, you know, it's, um, it's amazing to kind of to get a window into, you know, what Enzo was like, because obviously so many of us ne never met him. Um, mm. But he was, he was still very, very much involved, you know, even in those last few years of his life, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, every, you know, he always sat there on his chair in the garage at Fiorano when we were testing, you know, and, and you know, during the summer, I mean, it's daylight till 10 o'clock. So we, you know, we would just keep, kept on going until it got dark, you know, every day. Mm. And all the guys, not off, we didn't always have something to, 
really test, you know, it was more just, you know, he just wanted to hear the engines run, I think. Yeah. And, um, but having been involved in motorsport for so long, you know, Ferrari is obviously such a famous name throughout the world, whether you're a motorsport fan or not. Just mm. talk me through, you know, when you, when you left um, Fiorano that time, or sort of Maranello, and you had made a deal, you'd shaken hands with Enzo himself to become a Ferrari Formula One driver. Uh, just talk me through kind of what was going through your head at that time, because it must have been, having not even done a full season of Formula One, what a massive step. Yeah, I mean, it was almost surreal in a way, you know. I mean, it certainly took a while for the whole thing to sink in, you know. I mean, it was, it was everything, you know, I mean, like every driver, of course, dream of driving for Ferrari. I mean, even to this day, you know, it's, it's, it's the... Let's say the ultimate accolade for a driver, I guess, in a way, to be hired by Ferrari, but even more so back then when, when it was Mr. Ferrari who made the decision, you know. Mm. So um, you could definitely had to pinch yourself, you know, because, but yeah, it was like a blur in a way because it all happened so quickly, you know. And it was really unexpected. I mean, it was so nothing so that had ever been on the cards until, you know, everybody got back from. Rio for the, from the first race and all of a sudden I get the call from Piccinini you know to meet him at the Savoy in London and and we met and you know three hours later I'm a Ferrari driver. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you notice your life changing in terms of you know the fans and and the press and everything like that from you know before Ferrari and, and as soon as you signed for Ferrari because so the, a sort of a theme going through all these podcasts seems to be that there is just this massive amount of attention on Ferrari drivers, especially from the Italian press and also from mm. the fans. Um, did, you, did you experience that? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it is a life-changing experience, really. Uh, and it, to, even to this day, you know, I mean, especially for, if we go to Italy, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, that, I don't think it ever changes, you know. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, uh, totally changed, absolutely. Yeah. Did you, so you still, when you go to Italy, you recognise more than other countries, do you think? Well, yes, to a degree, yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, it just depends. It's weird, you know. It's just in the weirdest places. All of a sudden, you know, it's, 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 it's very strange. Yeah. yeah. And, but obviously, one of the, you know, we're talking about the, the, all the good stuff. There is the negative side of Ferrari that you can sort of never escape. And you touched on it earlier with the politics and pushing mm. for the wind tunnel. I think you once used the phrase of going back to the factory and it was, it was like arriving at a firing squad. Yeah. Um, and the politics is, you know, it was always there and that's always been a part of it. But I don't, I haven't quite understood why, you know, the Ferrari politics are always so kind of at the forefront of any story about Ferrari. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I mean, it is, you know, it, it, it's... It's the, I think part part of it is the culture of the of the team. I think just how it is, you know. But uh, I think it's also an enormous amount of pressure on everybody, and you know, it's it's. And I mean, there's all these factions, you know. And I think it's just it was just. I mean, we used to joke even when when I spoke to Prost, you know, after he'd been there. Because we were quite good friends, even you know, where we still are now. But but especially back then, and he said, you know, you you make one friend and you make two enemies. You know, it's just this whole balancing act all the time. You know, 
So you got to be really, and I, again, you know, I was probably a little bit too inexperienced because I fired off a couple of scuds to the old man, you know, with uh, sort of on a letter, just explaining what other teams were doing with their wind tunnels and stuff. And that's when I sort of <laughs> didn't go down too well with the, with the rest of the, <laughs> and, but you know, but it did wake them up because then once they committed, they probably had the best tunnel in the whole field, you know? So, I mean, it is, it was well overdue, let's say, you know, in that particular context, you know, of the wind tunnel, but there's obviously a million other things, but, but that was one of the key things to be competitive going forward because it sort of hold the whole dynamic shifted more and more from engines to aerodynamics as the years went by, obviously, and still is today. Yeah. When do, when do you think you were happiest in your Formula One career? Was that, because I know you obviously loved being a teammate to Prost, um, but was do you look back on Ferrari as one of sort of the happiest times in F1? Yeah, I mean, happiest is a... That's probably the wrong word. But maybe not a <laughs> word you would use in the context of F1, you know, because it's it's a lot of other factors than than just driving a race car and winning, well, you know, Grand Prix that makes you happy, I think. You know, that's just a job you do and you obviously do want, want to do as well as you can. But I think there's a lot of other factors in life that play an equally important part to make you happy. Um, but I mean, it was obviously, it was certainly a great experience just to, to be there and be part of this amazing thing, you know, but um, there's been other times with other teams, you know, where, where, you know, uh, felt at least an equal amount of, uh, let's say gratitude for getting you know getting the job done or do the result like the onyx experience was a great experience because it was a bunch of guys that got together and really tried to make this thing work you know and, and we did it quite well if you if you consider the circumstances and and the, the the resources we had and everything we did an amazing job you know to finish in the top 10 in the first year and get on the podium the first year and in some ways that was more gratifying than, you know, possibly winning a Grand Prix even, you know, cause it was really, there's a lot of hard work involved. Yeah. And t tell me about Alboreto cause you're obviously teammates with him, but then, you know, I think it's almost 12 years later, you then won Le Mans. Yeah. Him. You know, you've kind of, you've been teammates, sports cars and F1, which is so totally different. Yeah. I mean, we, exactly. I mean, we, we started racing against each other in F3, of course, you know, and followed F3, then F2, then Michaela got the break a few years earlier in F1. Then we end up in F1 together. Then, you know, I go, then we sort of go separate ways. Then we end up teammates in Arrows, free free races. Then a few more years go by. Then we end up doing the Daytona 24 hours in the Ferrari 333 when they launched that. And then, and then we end up doing Le Mans and we won Le Mans together. And then we drove together at Audi. So, I mean, we were like brothers at that point, you know, I mean, we, I mean, you know, I was incredibly fond of Mikhail, obviously. And, you know, when we were teammates at Ferrari, it was tense at times because, you know, it, it, it is because, you know, the first order of protocol is to beat your teammate, obviously. So it's, you know, it's competitive, but it's, it was, um, you know, a huge amount of respect between us and never any dirty games or anything like that. It was just, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to beat your teammate really. And I think you, it's fair to say that you gave him kind of, you probably rattled his, his, uh, his cage a bit when you first started driving for, for Ferrari, 
you know, because yeah. you're so quick. Um, am I right in thinking that some of the conversations with engineers suddenly started happening in Italian? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I knew when they were talking about me because there was, there was always Il Biondo. So I thought, okay, well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that that's, you know, it started getting political, you know, of course, but I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. Do you think, do you think it would have been any different if you could speak Italian? Um, possibly, but I think in a way, it was better to just separate it, you know, I mean, it was Harvey and I sort of formed a strong alliance, you know, and, uh, and, uh, I think it could have possibly helped, but I think the other way it was probably better not to, you know, not to get involved in all the minutiae, which is, you know, sort of a big, large part of it is just bullshit anyway. Uh, you know, it's just better to just knuckle down and kind of focus on, on my program, which is what I did, you know, especially in the second year. And, you know, I, I beat Michaela to the championship, but obviously the car was not at all, the greatest car that I've ever produced in 86 in particular, you know, so, yeah. so it was a difficult year in, in overall, but you know. Interesting. We just obviously talking to Ivan Capelli and his 92 car at Ferrari was, um, well, I think in his, his words, the worst car he ever drove. Um, yeah. you know, in, in 86, how, how quickly did you know that things were going to be difficult that year? I think both Michaela and I knew the moment we saw the car. I mean, we, 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 we were called to the factory, you know, to, to, to finally see the new car before we started testing and everything. And we go in this room and they pull the, the sheet off it, you know, and we both look at each other like, oh, dear. This is going to be a long year. Because <laughs> the, the car just didn't look right. I mean, it, just, it was big and bulky and just, I just, it just didn't look fast, you know, and it turned out not to be very fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. And just tell me a little bit about Alan Prost as a teammate, because I, I think you obviously, you said you learned so much from him in such a short space of time um, yeah. in terms of his feedback. Was that, was it quite eye-opening? Big time, yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah, it's a completely different level, you know. It's, uh, it was kind of almost overwhelming the first couple of races just to try to follow in the debriefs, but once you break it down and you started to understand, you know, then, I mean, you really understand how he was working with the car and managing the car, the, managing the whole weekend, really, you know, the, the, the car, the tires, the people around him, you know, I mean, he's, and I always used that description ever since, you know, cause he, you know, he's like the CEO of the car and all the, everything around him. He just, he directs it, you know, ding, 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 you know, it was like, and that's, you know, I mean, I've always applied that same method ever since, you know, and it's been incredibly helpful for sure. And I think even Ayrton, when he joined the team, you know, he was, that kind of raised his level to a whole different, different level as well, you know. Now, if you're looking for more Ferrari content, then you may well be interested in Motorsport's latest publication. Ferrari, from race to road, celebrates the journey of the world's most famous car brand, and its unique place in motor racing history. Using Motorsport's unmatched archive of stories and photographs, we trace the Ferrari story from its early days under Enzo, right up to date with interviews with current F1 star Charles Leclerc and F1 team boss Mattia Binotto. Along the way, we celebrate some of the all-time classic race cars, including the wonderful 1975 312T and races such as the Targa Florio.
Plus, we test some of the greatest Ferrari road cars. Illustrated with world-class photographs and wonderful writing, Ferrari from race to road is a must-have for all fans of the mark. It's on sale now in all good news agents, or you can buy it via the Motorsport website, which is motorsportmagazine.com. Mm. Now, Stefan, we've got a lot of reader questions. Um, okay. So I, will, I will just fire, fire them out. Um, yeah. So well, actually, what I've, uh, I've already asked Phil Turner's question. Sorry, Phil. Uh, that was about Michele Alvareto. Um, uh, Paul Murray, uh, what were the main differences you found between Ferrari and McLaren when driving for them in 86 and 87, respectively? Um, well, I mean, the main difference, I guess, was in the way they worked, you know, the way they operate. I mean, both were getting the results, but in a, quite a different way. I mean, McLaren was incredibly methodical, you know, and everything. Like, even from like, the point you arrive there and do your seat fitting, you know, everything is prepared, you know, everything's laid out. There's, like, a room just full of Stand 21 driving suits in every size, the Diodora racing shoes in every size, you know, so it's just boom, 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 ready to go. Fit, do your fitting, get in the car, do the thing, 20 minutes, half an hour, you do the adjustment, then the rest is taken care of, you know. It was, Ferrari was much more kind of emotional, you know, and, and but at the end of the day, they, they, you know, they obviously got the job done and in both different ways, you know, but... Um, Ferrari, and it's still today, and I think that's part of the reason why it is you have the charm and the mystique. Is it's all about passion, you know. Uh, whereas in, with McLaren, it was like more very systematic, methodical process to everything. Does that does that matter though? If you're getting results, do, do you miss the passion and the emotion? Yeah, I do, big time. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a big part of it, you know. And it kind of lifts you as a driver too, you know. You get sucked into that that kind of environment you know and it's definitely a big part of it yeah. yeah but having said that when when you when you drive for mclaren you know you know that every tool and every everything that's conceivably possible within their knowledge to do to make your life easier as a driver is there and it's being done mm. so there's never any kind of limit to what you know you just it it's it's just there to to, to make make you do the best you can you know so there's never any excuses yeah Nigel Mansell always always says that you know driving at your home Grand Prix would give you another sort of second a lap or something which um, I think most racing drivers sort of find quite hard to comprehend but did you find that you know driving a Ferrari in Italy was that did you get a similar thing there in terms of because the crowds you know I, I lived in Italy for a couple of years and the mm. crowd is there to support Ferrari and it's mm. just a sea of red and it must have been quite a either daunting or a wonderful thing to, to have in the corner of your eye. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. I mean, like the second race at the Imola when I nearly won, you know, when I ran out of fuel with a lap to go. And i never forget because when I passed Elio for the lead, I could, literally couldn't hear the engine of the car. The, <laughs> the roar of the crowd was so loud that that's all, he, that's all you could hear, you know, which was, I mean, just mind-blowing <laughs> experience, you know. Um, so, I mean, definitely lifts you. I mean, you just, you know, you're in such a state of mind at that point, you know, that it's like, you know, it's, I wish you could dial into that any time when you need it, you know, but it was pretty, pretty, pretty yeah. you know, special. Um, there's another question here um, that is sort of a similar question to the one before, but it's, uh, you started the 85 season in Brazil with Tyrrell, and I'm interested 
how big the differences were that you felt when you drove for the first time with Ferrari. Was the biggest change, what was the biggest change and how would you mark Ferrari turbo engine compared to the others you drove, Honda, Hart, Tag, Porsche? So it's a two-party question. I guess the, the yeah. between Ken and Ferrari and then the, the turbo. Well, I mean, you know, the Tyrrell obviously was at the very, very last legs of its life, you know, because it was the only normally aspirated car left. And it was incredibly uncompetitive just because of the engine. Uh, the car was a great little car to drive. It's a super nimble car um, and, you know, quite, quite well balanced. But it just had no power at all compared, I mean, you know, with 550, 570 horsepower compared to, you know, even in race trim, the, the Ferrari was probably 950 to 1,000 and up to 1,300, 1,500 sometimes in, in qualifying, you know, so it was massive difference in horsepower. But that also required a completely different driving style because you really had to adapt to all that power, you know, because the cars didn't have a huge amount of grip then. So you really had to, you know, especially in qualifying, you had to really adapt to, you know, to get the most out of it. And Am I right in thinking that you, you did love the turbo era but just because of the sheer power of it and the kind of... Yeah, um, I mean, I think any like. driver, it's just, it was like the ultimate in, like, crazy race car you know because with that's so much power and they were so brute and kind of raw cars to drive you know because there wasn't a lot of aero involved and so it was most of the you know grip came from the tires and we had the one lap qualifiers and everything so with the boost cranked up to max you know and one lap qualifiers, it was it was a pretty cool experience yeah. um th there's a question here obviously because you, you know you went on you went over to america where you where you remain today um to drive in, in cart and there's a, mm -hmm. a question here from arch 101 i'm guessing that's not your real name arch um but uh, he's asking you to describe the differences and similarities between the formula one cars and then the indy cars that you drove uh well i mean they are quite different you know because i mean the indy car is was at that time not now but that time it was 50 percent heavier which, you know, makes everything kind of a little bit, slows everything down a little bit, makes it a little bit lazier and not just so reactive to everything. Um, but what I really liked with, with IndyCar was the, the fact that you could turn up, and like in my case, you know, with a, in a very, very small team with a year-old car, and we ended up on the podium the first race I did, you know, with, with you know, pretty strong field of guys, you know, racing there. So, um, uh, which of course you couldn't do in F1 at any time, you know, certainly not today. Um, and the tracks were great, you know, some really like just tough old school racetracks, you know, where if you put a wheel off, you know, off the track, you're going to get punished for it, you know, which, which is really the way it should be. I mean, you don't want to get hurt, of course, but it should be, I mean, it was that you always had to kind of balance the car, knowing if you did, if you screwed up, it was going to punish you, you know. Mm. And uh, and a lot of tracks are still like that today, of course, in the US, you know. Did you, did you find that indie cars or, or kart gave you sort of a new lease of life in a way? Because it sort of I feel as though Emerson Fittipaldi was, you know, very much like that. And I think you yeah. said the similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. Because it's, I mean, what, if you've been in F one like I'd been in 10 years on and off at that point, you know, you, 
you get a bit burnt out with it, you know, not a from the pressure and just the constant sort of media thing, you know, and, 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 and just everything around it. And every, it, then I arrived in America and it's like, everything is so relaxed, you know, and kind of easy going and all the drivers kind of hang out together, you know, it's, it was just a completely different energy in the paddock, you know, which for good and bad, some things I, I wish it was a little bit more intense, you know, but at the same time, it was, uh, it was definitely a revelation at the time, you know, to just turn up and enjoy driving a race car as fast as you could, you know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The, um, there's a question here from Becky, um, which I'll come on to ask in a second, but I want to, you're, you're sat in the USA at the moment, and you can actually, I'm pretty sure I can see some of your artwork in the background. Mm. Just tell me about, so when did you start the art? Because it's now, it takes up a lot of your time now, but it, was it? Yeah. Well, uh, I st- actually, funny enough, I, I started uh, in 86 when, I mean, Elio DeAngelis and I were, became very close friends. And we, we were hanging out together all the time, you know, and when he got killed, he kind of, it, it affected me in a pretty bad way. And because it's the first time I really, you know, lost a friend, a colleague and a friend, you know, in a, in a race car. So it was quite a tough one to get over, you know. I've, I've always been interested in art and design and everything. And I collected a little bit when I started making some money, you know, different paintings and things. But I don't know to this day really what prompted me to go and buy a canvas and some paint and do something in his memory or whatever, you know. And, uh, but that's, that's what I did, and I kind of got hooked on it right away, and I've been doing it on and off ever since, you know. Although it's only now in mo- most more recent years I've been starting to take it a little bit more serious, you know, and selling, selling the work that I do. And uh, the, all of these, well, some of, your, uh, art, some of your artwork is actually on the Motorsport shop online. Yeah, so if any of you exactly, listening or yeah. watching uh, want to have a look at it, do, do you go onto the Motorsport shop? Because there's lots there. There's one I do need to ask you about. I think it's called Lucha Libre. Yeah. What's the story behind that? Because there's one of the guys who works on the shop was saying, please, can you ask Stefan what the meaning of this painting is? Because I've looked at it for so long. <laughs> well, it, it, so this is a kind of a, a prototype for an idea that I have to do a whole series of these lucha. It's the Mexican wrestling, you know, the, the whole, that whole culture they have in Mexico with the wrestlers and the mask and everything. So I did this one just as a sample, but I've actually just finished another one. Um, 
I don't know if I can get the computer and walk you down there and show it to you. Do you want me to show it? This is, yeah, this is great. This is because uh, it has Motorsport some significance podcast. to. It does actually have some significance <laughs> to motorsports in this particular case, um, and that's kind of what I'm thinking of doing: is put different characters in behind this mask, you know, and uh, sort of a warrior to warrior kind of concept, you know. So I'll show you this one here, if you can see it there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so is that, that, that's the second in the series. Can you tell who that is? Go on, tell us. It's, it's Lewis Hamilton. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was a course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. so that's, uh, that's the f kind of the, the first one in that concept. Uh, as, as, as Lewis finished said, this it, one here. This is James Dean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Blimey. Yeah. So as, have you shown that to Lewis yet? No, I haven't actually. Uh, just finished it literally. So, yeah, I don't know. I've got the end so up there. Oh, yeah. So, I'm going to rewind to Becky's question. Um, and she wanted to know yeah, which was uh, harder, Formula One or art? Uh, well, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, harder. I mean, it, I don't know if you can compare the two in that context, you know, I mean, the, the hard part with art, I mean, obviously you don't have the pressure and the intensity in art as you do in, when you race, but the hard part with art, I guess, is to, A, you got to have the idea. I mean, that's the, that's the tricky bit, I think, you know, to just come up with a con concept that is going to look right, you know, and then just have the eye to kind of, see when he's right, you know, and when to stop. It's, it's a laborious process, but it's a, it's a very, it's a really great process at the same time. And the focus in the end is quite similar. You know, you get in that zone, you know, when you kind of just lose all sense of time and space, you know, and you just get completely immersed in what you do and like the same thing as you do when you drive, you know, that's the only thing that matters. It's just, you're just so focused on what you're doing. You know? And is that the same? Because you obviously you you design and make watches as well. Is that a, do you get a similar feeling from that? Yeah, I do, but it's different because you have a lot more people involved there. I mean, I do the the, the design and the concept, and then you, but then you have all these different factories involved. You know, the dials, the movement, the cases, the straps, and packaging, and all this stuff. You know, with the art, it's a lot easier. You just you, you make the painting. It's just you you know and you've kind of alone in here just 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 grinding away you know yeah now yeah. i'm going to jump back to some of these um readers questions uh so there's someone called bremgarten uh and he wants to know what the more satisfying was to drive a formula one car or a lamar gpc lmp1 car uh i mean again you know it's it's they're all gratifying in their own way you know i think le mans is special because the track is very special you know i mean it is i mean unfortunately now they've taken away some of the more challenging parts but it used to be for 24 hours every lap you have to you know ah, <laughs> tighten the belts and just go for it you know that because otherwise you're not going to be i mean it is a very demanding track and you know speed is super high and uh you know traffic is there's just a lot of factors you know that that plays in there but but you know i mean the ultimate 
in the end, it's probably an F1 car in terms of sheer performance, you know. There's nothing that gets close to that, of course. Yeah. And it, it, um, he's also asked which of the, these two branches of motorsport, sports cars and Formula One, is, is more difficult. Well, if you want to win, everything is difficult. You know, it's easy to get to the 95%, you know, and, and do all right. But if you want to win, every, it doesn't matter what type of racing you do, it's difficult. You know, so, and again, you know, you got to be in the right car, of course. Otherwise, you know, and it's the same in, at Le Mans as it is in Formula One, you know. But um, I would say that any, I mean, that's the only thing that I maybe miss a little bit with F1 is that there is not enough, let's say, layers that plays into the final outcome of the race. You know, if the car is quick and you're in the right car, you know you're going to, you're in with a pretty good shot of winning. Whereas at Le Mans, you know, there's so many factors that play in. Same thing in IndyCar, you know, the strategy, it's conditions, it's, it's it's just a lot of lot more levels that'll determine the outcome of the race, and that's a good thing I think you know because you it makes it more. I mean, like an IndyCar, you know, it's you never know who's going to win. I mean, this year it's a good example of that. I mean, it's it's uh, any car out of fifteen could win every race pretty much. You know. Do you and, do you still follow Formula One now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I try to keep in sort of keep quite informed, you know, with people in within the industry on the technical side and everything. Yeah. So, what do you think of these new rules that have been sort of delayed? But do you think they're going to spice up the kind of as you were just talking about the wonderful thing with IndyCar, fifteen cars could could win the race? Are these new rules and cost cap is that going to change anything? I don't think so. I I I, I, I doubt it. You know, because I think it's just too many factors. I mean, it's not cl defined clearly enough, in my opinion, that you can determine what you can. I mean, the you know, the the bigger teams or the bigger resources are always going to come out on top, no matter how you shake it. And you know, what what would and, you? And the other thing I think is that you know the focus is, is still too much on aerodynamics, you know, which by definition ruins the racing, really. Uh, if, I mean, I, 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 I would love for them to come up with an aero package that would actually work when, you, when you're in traffic and stuff, you know, but I, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. What, what would you do if you were in charge? Because I seem to remember reading something that you wrote about kind of the future of Formula One and, and, and where you think that should be. Just tell our sort of listeners and readers what you think well, the answer in is. A, in very simple terms, I mean, it's a it's a big discussion. I mean, it's you know, it's uh, to to really summarize all that. I think, but what I would like to f find a way is that you make. I mean, there's there's four things that makes a car go fast, right? It's the chassis, it's the engine, it's the tires, and it's the driver. Those are the four main components to make a race car go fast. And I think the error right now is probably at least 50% or more of that performance, but probably more like 60 or 70 even. And then you got the engine and then you got, you know, so if you could find 
all four of those make an equal part, I think that'll make the racing a lot more interesting. And I would, you know, um, so based by doing that, obviously take away the importance of aerodynamics to quite a large degree and make the tires more important. And the engine is, you know, I mean, the engine, I think everybody will find an even, you know, fairly quickly like, like they have now. But I think the, I think the tires should be, have a bigger impact and maybe have more than one tire manufacturer in order to develop the tires to, you know, to a higher level. And, um, and then take away the importance of aerodynamics, you know, and, and my idea to do that would be to, to be able to control it is to basically put a limit on downforce with, uh, you know, you just measure it off the strain gauges on the push rods and you, you have either a, some kind of a, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I'm pretty sure that it would be a, an achievable thing to do to either adjust the right or micro adjustment, you know, uh, to keep the car on, the exact level of downforce that is allowed, just like you're only allowed X amount of boost pressure, you're allowed X amount of tire pressure even now. The weight, I mean, all they have limits for everything else, so why not have the limit on the downforce as well? And sh then that would then shift to other areas of the car. Weight, for example, could be a big factor, uh, you know, because, I mean, these cars now with the batteries and everything are becoming very, very heavy cars, uh, and this crazy long wheelbase they have and everything. So I think there's a lot of things that, you know, could, you know, it would be a radical thing for sure, but uh, I just don't think aero is the way to go. There's got to be other way. It's, it's kind of an outdated concept too, because what, I mean, aero is, it is what it is. I mean, it's there to make the cargo, but apart from that, what else does it do? You know, it doesn't really benefit the car industry or anything else. It doesn't make the racing any better for sure. I can imagine dinner between yourself and Adrian Newey must be quite an, quite an interesting <laughs> few hours. <laughs> well, I haven't had the pressure. I mean, I, I know Adrian quite well, but we never never managed to make it to dinner. But I mean, I do talk to a lot of other colleagues, designers. And in fact, it's, it's funny. I've had two current technical directors contacted me after I wrote that big essay. You know, it was an epic document. It took me over a year to write the bloody thing. But they actually said, spot on, this is the best solution we've heard so far. So there's obviously, I mean, I think there is some mileage to it, but, uh, you know. Could you, could you ever be tempted to down your paintbrush and go and help Ross Braun and, the, and Formula One come up with the new rules? Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting because it would be interesting also to, I mean, obviously they know, massively more than I would ever dream of knowing, you know, so it's, it's easy for me to sit here and be an armchair enthusiast, you know, and think I know everything, but obviously I don't, uh, not even close. So, but you know, it would, I would love to throw these ideas out and have them kind of sh shut it down, you know, uh, and make me happy with their argument, you know, that that's not the way to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it would be, you know, and, and dialogue like that is always good regardless, I think. Now, just before we, we let you go and, and get back to the painting, um, I really want to sort of just touch briefly on Ferrari now and, uh, and the season they're having, because I've, I've spoken to all the other guests we've had about exactly this and, and how Ferrari can find itself with so many resources. And we've seen it before, we've, you know, whether it's Toyota and, you know, the mm. turn of the... Um, 
you know the 2000s and but they they consistently have good budget and they consistently can attract the best engineers the best drivers if they want mm. what why do they have these off seasons or, or you know off spells yeah that's a good question i mean again you know i don't know the ins and outs but i think the the thing with f1 today you know it is become it's become so incredibly complex now and such a big i mean it's just a massive operation and it's you know the way the car i mean it's really a philosophy when you you know you go down a certain road and you believe that that's the way to go and philosophically the whole car is then built around that concept whatever that is and if that concept isn't right then you're you're screwed basically because you can't just change this or that it's it's like everything follows everything if you like you know and of course again you know mostly based around aerodynamics um and then once you once you're committed with the way the rules are there's really not a lot you can do to to change it you know until the next set of rules come out so it's um it's a tough one mm. for sure yeah. so you know you mentioned earlier that you you felt as though you actually you went to ferrari a bit early in your career and you know you're a bit sort of i suppose naive in, in some respects but mm. looking back you were a ferrari driver you know for two seasons you got some amazing results for them would you check would you change anything looking back at your career no well knowing what i know now yeah i mean just i mean i wouldn't change anything in the way my career went because i you know i'm obviously very happy with with that but i would have in when you would like with mclaren and ferrari i probably would have had i been a little bit more forceful in my own you know way in my own belief and and more trust my own gut feeling which is something i learned later on i think i would have been in a different position you know and then you know had i won the first couple of races with ferrari like i could have done i think everything would have changed dramatically as well you know it's just the whole dynamic is is different you know so but hey it is, it is what it is <laughs> well, Stefan, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I'm, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll leave you a piece yeah. of painting. I'm also about to pass out because my dog's been farting all the way through. <laughs> so, I, so I'm, about, I'm about to keel over. I need to. Yeah, I left mine at home pressure. for that very reason. <laughs> yeah, he's fast asleep. He has no idea. Um, so, Stefan, <laughs> on that bombshell, thank okay. you so much. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And thank we'll you very much. You all again soon. Bye bye. All right. All the best. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.